0: in the name of Overhead Athletics Podcast, where we cover rehabilitation, biomechanics, human movement, and optimizing human performance. Welcome back to Overhead Athletics. Today we're joined by Zach Duchamp, who is a strength and conditioning coach at TCU. He works with baseball players. He also works a little bit with the football players. Um, He's certified through multiple credentialing Um, organizations, including the National Strength and Conditioning Association. He's also at SCCC, which is another strength and conditioning certification. He's been through a bachelor's degree program, and he's actually been at TCU for quite a while now. Welcome to the podcast, Zach.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, Excited to be here and talk some baseball.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe you could kind of give us a more in-depth run through on... um, how you got to TCU and, and how you started working with uh, the baseball players and the quarterbacks.
1: Sure. So I actually uh, I actually fell in love with training when I was um, in junior high and, and kind of entering high school and bought my own weight set, bought, uh, bought books. At, at the time, it was all bodybuilding books, right? It was uh, Flex Magazine and Muscle Media and this type of stuff. It was just magazines you could buy at GNC. Um, when I, when I went to college, I had no idea what I actually wanted to do. And so my dad one day sitting on the couch was like, well, why don't you just train athletes? You love training. Why don't you do that? And I was like a light bulb moment for me, honestly, in, in, in my career was him saying that to me. And I, uh, I took it from there. Um, I spent uh, I played football in college at Missouri State, spent a couple of years as a strength coach in the Anaheim Angels organization. And TCU had a unique opportunity in that it was kind of a baseball and football combined um, position where that doesn't really exist much in power five sports, power five athletics um, at the division one level. And I had played college football, spent time with a professional baseball organization. And so it was really the perfect fit on both sides.
2: Awesome. Very nice. Um, Maybe we could talk a little bit more about you know, I think it's very interesting how you train the baseball team as well as the, is it specifically the quarterbacks?
1: Yeah, for the most part, it's it's quarterbacks. And even just as of recently with COVID, um, I, I don't hardly work with football anymore at all. But for the past 13 years that I've been here at TCU, yes, it was. It was specific to the quarterbacks. I would work with the wide receivers a little bit as well. But most of it was, it was, you know, very specific to the quarterbacks. A quarterback, honestly, is, is just like a pitcher. They're a rotational athlete. There's some different aspects as far as, you know, how they have to move around and things like that, but we train them very, very similar, right? Scapula is very, very important. Thoracic and hip rotation, it, it's all the same. Maybe we could talk
2: a little bit more in detail about like some of the differences regarding arm path, arm swing. I feel like it's kind it's of common nowadays for baseball players to have the idea in their head that throwing a football is good for them, but they don't have too much information past that, you know? Changing the mechanics up can actually negatively impact your pitching motion and, and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, so uh, you know, I don't know who who else does this in the country, but we actually this was probably four or five years ago. Um, we actually use plyo balls with our quarterbacks. So in the offseason, we throw plyo balls um, and we teach proper arm patterns. I guess if you, if you want the truth, with our quarterbacks, one of the big things with football is. Quarterback coaches, high school coaches, whatever you want to say, they always force their guys to throw over the top because usually your linemen are big, right? You've got six foot plus linemen. Quarterback right. might not be as tall, and you've got to get the ball over the line. So with almost every quarterback that I've ever seen that went to a specific quarterback coach or was was taught how to throw, if you want, if you want the truth comes way over the top and out of position with their, with their um, shoulder line, right? We know that an arm unwinds efficiently with the shoulder line. It doesn't it, it, it does not unwind efficiently when it's out of that shoulder line, right. We know that applies to every baseball athlete. But quarterbacks, for some reason, are continuously taught to throw over the top. They get no external rotation because of that. So a lot of times what we're doing with those plyo balls is really trying to make the arm path a little bit more efficient to what's what's actually natural. Um, I, I have always questioned the fact that do we really need to do something that's completely unnatural to the human body for another three, four, maybe five inches of vertical um, you know, whatever you want to call it, where the ball comes out vertical release, I guess I should say over the line. I don't think that's the way that we should treat an athlete because that is not what is efficient for the body. Really, all you're going to do is is create injuries, in my opinion, down the road. And so what we would see with these quarterbacks is they have no layback whatsoever. And it all becomes almost a lat and tricep throw. Um, so we hammer uh, plyo balls with those quarterbacks a ton.
0: That's awesome. And just for the list. We're going to hear this on iTunes or uh, Spotify. Basically what Zach's talking about is if you took one shoulder, drew a line directly across to the other shoulder and continued that line across, what we're looking for is the elbow to be somewhere approximating that line. So super high above that line would kind of be what he's talking about here, where there's excessive elevation of the shoulder or flexion abduction of the shoulder. And now the shoulder's in a compromised position where it doesn't have the same amount of ability to externally rotate because you've taken all the slack out of the joint. And we see the opposite too with a lot of infielders who end up with a very low elbow and then they've artificially closed down the joint space. They've artificially uh, slacked part of the capsule and then tensioned part of the capsule. And what ends up happening is they don't have the same amount of external rotation. So uh, this is a, Problem on both ways, but with throwing the football and and I I have to agree with you. If the end result is maybe three inches higher or something like that, we're, we're potentially compromising the shoulder joint of these quarterbacks, but we're also limiting their ability to throw it at a certain distance and certainly a certain speed. So right. um, that's definitely that's definitely an interesting interesting point. So how do you uh, implement? I guess. What would be the ways you implement some of these plyo care throws and um plyo care balls with these guys? yeah
1: so what we actually do is i call them quarterback drills to make them a little bit more specific we adapted some of the um at the time and like i said this was probably starting four or five years ago we adapted at the time some of drive lines um drive lines drills that they go through and i turned them into movement patterns where they might have one step back right and driveline actually uses a step back now as one of their drills um i'm not sure if they call it the step back but it's essentially you step one step behind you plant that back leg and ride that thing and throw and so we would do a step back um, we would do a, a back pedal so you're stepping back one one step throwing stepping forward one step and throwing and so we would go through that three piece um that three piece series with every plyo ball for the designated number of throws that was number one um, one of the other ways that we did it is we put visual markers on our wall. So in our indoor, we've got a, 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 a pads on our wall. And I would put pieces of tape up at, you know, different, different spots on the wall is all it was. And we would say, all right, on this series of throws, you've got to hit this spot. On this series of throws, we're hitting this spot. And it wasn't always, it's not always just in front of them or just off to the right. Because as we know, a quarterback has a 53-yard field. Side to side to have to throw to. So he might have to open up quickly and and, you know, throw to a to a running back off in the flat or a deep out route on the right side or or whatever the case is. And then we would actually progress to where we were calling out the numbers. So now he's got his drop back pattern or his step behind pattern, step in front pattern. And he might have number one, number four, number two, whatever the case is. So we're actually tying in some, some perception reaction into the throwing pattern itself.
0: Yeah, now we're adding variability. And without that stimulus of that exact same ball in their hands, are you seeing automatically that they start to migrate or self-organize towards uh, a more efficient shoulder position? Or yeah. are you seeing something that you cue through various means?
1: Yeah, no, once 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 we get to that point, to be honest, hopefully we've kind of ingrain that pattern without them knowing. And a lot of times the athlete in them, just like you said, the athlete in them, these guys are division one athletes. It takes over and, and they find the most efficient way to throw that. And to be honest, a lot of times too, the plyo ball just in itself, once you get the actual implement out of a thrower's hand, a lot of times they their body naturally organizes how it should, right? When you, we've all seen it. You take a baseball, a baseball player, and he throws a baseball, terrible, and then you give him a plyo ball it could be the yellow plyo that driveline makes it's the same weight and all of a sudden they throw it like they should and you're like what in the hell as soon as they get a regular at the regular implement out of their hand they they throw like an athlete
0: yeah, yep absolutely and sometimes it's just taken that like something we see all the time is the way that the athlete ball out of their glove has led to them being in the wrong position further down in the throw. So all we simply do is just have them take the ball and start with the ball, not in their glove, and then just tell them to throw it. And all of a sudden the throw is now totally different just because they they don't have that same perception of, hey, it's time to throw a ball, the ball starts in the glove. As soon as we kind of disconnect them from that, um, I don't know, that neurological sequence, I guess, yeah. immediately the throw is altered. So yeah. that's right. That's, that's pretty uh, interesting that you use that with QBs. We don't work with as many QBs, but uh, we do time to time. But
2: so yeah, I feel like with the younger athletes too, especially taking them the kind of out of that environment, out of that sport, and putting them in something else helps them to stop thinking so much, get out of their head, and just let their body, like you said, organize naturally.
1: So. Yeah, and and the thing about the quarterback uh, the quarterbacks is they they. Have done specific throwing stuff with a football for so long that just letting them be athletic, honestly, puts these guys. It organizes them in a way that their uh, that their body should. Right, they they allow their body to organize itself as it should throw. So, the younger the athlete gets, the younger the athlete gets, the more that we throw um, kind of randomized patterns. We, we, we I'm not cueing them a bunch. We just let them be athletes. So the back pedals, the um, step backs, the step forward drills, just let them be athletes and figure out how to throw the ball. Cause a lot of them will, a lot of them will figure that out.
0: Now, do you ever start to integrate the two? Uh, and what I mean is like you say, okay, Hey, you got five throws with this fly ball. Now you got six throws with the football to a target or something like that. Just try to integrate the two together.
1: So with the football guys, no, I really, we never really got into that. So we would do all their plyo throws first. And then we would, I mean, it was all one holistic throwing program plyo balls were first, and then they would move into the football Um, just because of the time that we would use them in the off season. We never really, I didn't have these huge extended amounts of time to actually delve into kind of blending with the baseball kids. um, The athletes that I train on the baseball side, we absolutely do. I mean, I've got a pitcher right now, that I use the baseball in between um, virtually every plyo throw that we make. So um, yeah. at some point, and we even do something that is is kind of crazy. I have another athlete, throw him a ball. He'll be on the mound. I'll have him throw him. We have a bucket of plyos and baseball sitting there. And I'll just have the athlete either put the bucket or put the ball in his glove behind his back. So he can't see what ball is coming to him. And then he just has to, he just has to go through his motion and throw it. That's something that we've been playing with a lot so that he can't, like his body can't naturally say, okay, I got the blue pile ball coming here. This is a heavier ball. This is, you know, and his body has to, his mind thinks about it. His, body, his mind realizes what's coming. Instead, we're we're doing it on the sneak. And I know he gets it in his glove and he feels that this is heavier, this is lighter. But until he actually puts it in his hand, he doesn't know. And I don't let him look at the ball either. He just has it in his glove and he's got to get it and go through his, uh through his motion, whatever drill we're doing so that his body, we're trying to replicate and drill in the same positions, no matter what the light ball, the heavy ball, the baseball, it doesn't matter. And that's what I've been doing with one of my guys with huge success. Yeah. That's has, awesome.
0: I I never thought of that specifically, but I like that says. And and we talk about something similar. We use a lot of, especially with our injured guys in the beginning, we use a lot of pre-positioning. We'll put them away from the position of fault in a more efficient position, have them initiate the throw from there, and then we kind of use it as each phase of the throw. So we'll go back, back through maybe four, five, six positions, and then we tell the athlete, hey, if I video these and I overlay them, at a certain point in the throw, they should all be identical. So whether I had one athlete start here, and then I had him start down where he had to actually lift the ball the next throw. If I overlay these, by the time your arm gets to here, they should be identical. And so we call that phase space specificity. But I like the idea of the, of the balls and kind of integrate them. That's probably been a problem, I think, in some of the research, especially um, regarding weighted balls and, and throwing weighted balls. There's no effort to blind um, there's no blinding effort. Like the participants know, Hey, I'm throwing a six ounce ball. I'm throwing a five ounce ball. I'm throwing a four ounce ball. And if we made all the balls look identical and if they're only one ounce apart, it's going to be hard for a thrower to identify, uh, precisely which ball is the heavy ball, which ball is the light ball. And then we'll really start to figure out what these balls do with these athletes, especially if we're talking about velocity increases and, placebo effect and hey we have a double blind controlled trial here where these guys throw with a four five and six ounce ball these guys start with the five ounce ball and let's see what we see at the end yeah i've I've been kind of looking for something like that but i like the idea of even you know manipulating between the plyo
2: balls and the regular balls too
1: yeah yeah and i mean he was he was the athlete we just spoke about he was um a guy that was having trouble transferring from plyo balls to the baseball, He'd get a baseball back in his hand and things would kind of go south and he would overthink it and it was in his mind. And, and so we started using that method a little bit. And to be honest, that was one of the best things that we did with him.
2: Yeah, I like that. On, on the same topic of cross training, maybe bringing a little bit, bring it back to baseball. Um, for any like young athlete out there who heard, yeah, hey, maybe I should start throwing a baseball or throwing a football, sorry. Maybe we could talk about the positive implications that could have as well as any caution that you might give them.
1: Yeah, um, I've kind of gone both ways on this early on, I guess in my career, I was probably a little bit more against it. Um, And to be honest, I'm not even sure why. I really don't mind it. I really don't mind it now in the fact that it is, it's a heavier object. It honestly, for a lot of my guys, having them throw a football, it kind of cleans up their arm a lot of times. It, 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 and you guys may disagree with me, but with the the again the younger the athlete, that heavier implement they've got to be tighter with it. We get a more closed elbow angle. Um, they they tend to lead with their elbow into scap retraction a little bit more from what I see. And sometimes um, I really I honestly I don't mind it. A lot of uh, a lot of our guys will throw a football just to just as a warm up type thing. I'm not huge on it. But I think there can be, in certain instances, I think there can be some uh, some some advantages to, to using that football, to get those guys to – guys that have really, really long arm paths, I guess is what that's I should say.
0: I don't know what, what your thought is. Uh, I, I, I love it. It makes you bring the ball in close to your center of rotation. And that's that's been one of the things with uh, the heavier baseballs that's been a positive is it's heavier. I can't throw with it super far away from my center of rotation. Exactly. Football's awesome in that respect. I guess my only concern with football is this guys that end up too supinated in the throw and they have medial elbow pain. If they're not a guy that's been too long in terms of their arm action where they've had the ball too far away from their head, if you're too supinated and then you're kind of reinforcing because you have to be supinated with the football throw, that's always been my, uh, my perception. I love the football throw for somebody who is that typical guy that drags their arm behind, the ball's
2: too far away. I don't know what you're no, I, some, I think with, I, I bring the football out with some of the older guys. I think it's, it's pretty effective in, in that sense. But with some of the younger kids, you just don't have a good sense of their body. I'll actually give them like a smaller medicine ball, a heavier ball and put them in some of the positions and just put them on a mini tramp. And like you said, it, it seems to, they seem to self-organize and it cleans up their arm path. And I'm like, That's what we're looking for you to do with the five ounce, you know, the five ounce baseball. That's the type of efficiency we need to be moving with, even though it's a lot lighter. We need to act like we're pulling big loads,
0: yeah. Yeah, the yeah I mean, that kinesthetic sense like, hey, I can feel momentum a lot easier, I can feel with my arms in a specific position. So, you know, I don't know if this is something you deal with a ton at the level that you're at, but we see so many young high school kids that are injured, and a lot of times. Times they just have no clue where their body's at in space. Um, and so they have to develop some, some amount of kinesthetic awareness. And sometimes that, that little bit of extra load gives them a sense for momentum, lets them understand a little bit where the ball is at and where their arm is at. So,
1: yeah, the younger I, the athlete, honestly, the better, the better I think I like football, football throws, to be honest. I, I don't really have a downside necessarily. I, I agree with you on the supination aspect. Um, but, uh, in a, in a way it's kind of a depends answer, right? If, if we've got kids that are really, really long, I think a football cleans them up very, very easily and gets them to understand in their mind, oh, okay. I threw a football very, very well, like from these positions, why wouldn't I use the same, you know, virtually the same positions with a baseball. And so I think that's an easy way to just get their mind wrapped around, okay, it's not all about taking the ball out of my glove and facing it to second base right. and then being super long, right, it, it, it starts to get their mind involved in, okay, this actually works this way too.
0: And that's, the hard part comes after that, which is bridging the gap between the football and the baseball, because you, you'll still see those guys who were the quarterback in high school and now they're pitching in college. And if you ask them to throw a football, it looks drastically different than the way they throw the baseball. And, it really shouldn't look that different. You know, there's there's uh, minute differences, but then it's like, how can we bridge the gap between the sequencing that you have when you throw the football in terms of how you get your arm to the right place at the right time, the right amount of elbow flexion, bringing the ball in at the right time, those sorts of things. And then it, that's when it becomes a little bit trickier is how can we bridge that gap between the football throw and the baseball throw, or even the pile care ball and the football throw. Yeah.
1: So. Yeah, I mean, you're right on. So maybe like we could kind of
0: shift gears just a little bit and uh, talk a little bit about um, some of your theories that you've put into a book, Movement Over Maxes and um, some of your methodology there and and why you actually ended up putting it into a book format. What inspired you to do that?
1: Yeah, so it really was um, a labor of love over uh, 10 or 12 years here. Um, Of coaches, high school coaches reaching out to me saying, Hey, send me a program, send me your program, uh, send me anything. I don't know what to do with my kids. And you can't do that. Right. I can't do that at at, at my position. I can't send you the college program that we're using for multiple reasons, not, you know, let alone the fact that I've got 18 to 20 year old or 22 year old, 23 year old kids that are um, some of them going to be first, second, third round draft picks that this doesn't work for your freshman in high school, and so what it was was, I realized these coaches don't have strength coaches at their disposal, and a lot of times they've got to wear the hat of everybody in the in the uh, in the program in the organization. So, I put together our foundation program, how we teach all of our incoming athletes to train essentially, so that they can, so that we can solidify the squat pattern, the hinge, you know, the upper push and pull patterns that the spinal stability that we're looking for. We just I just organized it in exactly the way that I utilize it. I I wrote everything that we do. I put it in a book, and that's how the uh, the book came about. And it was actually very, very tough. and it wasn't until I realized, you know what? I'm just gonna tell them everything. I just put it all out there. It wasn't until that moment that it took me three weeks to finish the book and it was done. And I'd probably spent twelve to fourteen months. Before that, trying to like think about how I would tell somebody to do this, and how am I going to tell them this without actually telling them this? You know, I don't. I'm not going to tell them all everything we do because I don't want them to steal it. And then I heard a great quote from uh, Skip Bertman, uh, used to be the LSU uh, famous LSU coach. Um, I, I think that's his name, at least. I hope it is. <laughs> <laughs> he, he won national championships. I'm sure it is, but um, I'm not a big baseball. I'm not a big baseball guy, to be honest. Outside of the training of it. So he said something back in the um, 80s. He was using the mental game, right? Um, He was using the mental game to train his baseball players. And he started putting out videos and whatever it was uh, on the mental game. And somebody asked him, they said, you're you're putting all this information out. These guys are going to start beating you with it, taking it and winning national championships. Because that's what they were doing at the time. And he said, no, nobody will ever do that. I'm the only one that can run the program the way I run it. Everybody else is going to have their own variation. And and it was hearing that quote that changed my opinion on why am I trying to hide or, you know, be kind of uh, in the gray about what we do. Just I'll just give them what we do. This is what we do. And this is exactly how we handle it. And then they can figure it out because nobody's going to be able to implement the same program that I implement here. Everybody's going to have their spin or their variation. So have at it.
0: Well, that's just like uh, you've been to Gary Gray courses.
1: I've never been to a Gary Gray I I've, I've read his material I know what he does I'm familiar with okay. it. I've never actually been to a course now
0: so that's like kind of uh that was originally like I think something that I came across when, when looking through their material was they use something that's so unique and a lot of people I think there are people inside his uh his camp I guess his organization were like you know if you give this to everybody you know they're gonna bastardize it and take your stuff and it's kind of the thought of hey, you know, we do something very specific. Somebody's going to take your material. They're going to take a good percentage of it, just like they're going to take some of our material, and it's going to become a blended, uh, a blended program. But in the end, you're right. No, no one's going to do it like you if you're the founder and the creator of it. Um, but I, you know, I really appreciate that you're willing to put that material out there because there's so much stuff online now, and, and there's so many books and. You have people come to you all the time say, hey, I read this book or I or came across this material or this blog and they've come to certain conclusions based on those things and the conclusions they've come to are based on a fragment of, of the information that would be relevant. You've seen 5% of the picture and now you've uh, imagined what's happening in the rest of the image. So I think just having something that's a complete product, uh, complete resource, is super valuable for the kids that are, you know, trying to play at the college level or whatever else. But this is something that I, I think that um, going through your material, I think that it's kind of conveyed is it's, it's not just a program that you're going to sit down and do, it's more of a, a methodology. And I was just curious how you came up with the uh, the title.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that was actually weighing on me, that entire 14 month process trying to figure out what it was going to call it. And to be honest, I don't remember, but I remember I was driving home and I had read a tweet of something somewhere. And when I'm driving home, I always just have ideas, right? I have ideas in rebuttal to uh, something that somebody tweeted or just whatever. I'm just thinking, I don't listen to anything. I don't do anything. I just run through ideas. So I actually use my voice recorder. One of the best things I've I figured out was to use my voice recorder and just start voicing these ideas into my recorder. And I, as I was driving home on my, you know, in the evening sometime, I turned on my recorder and started talking, just started talking my ideas. And I said, I, I can't even remember now, but I said, "Movement over maxes." You know, it's got to be movement over the max. And I was like, "Movement over maxes." And I was, I said in my recorder. Shit, that's the title. There it is, <laughs> Movement Over Actors. But I don't remember what it was in relation to. I'd have to go back and find it in my in my phone somewhere. But it just, it randomly popped up, popped in my brain. And um, it's, that's, honestly, it's probably sold more books because of the title is catchy, than the information is actually good, if you want the truth. <laughs> I, I think it's a great title. I mean, just
2: I know in my college experience, we were always chasing the maxes. I mean, even on the baseball team, we're trying to lift more than the other guys but not, you don't really realize how, you know, maybe your your movements are becoming less efficient or, you know, you're not really working toward the specific things you need for that sport. So uh, I, I love yeah. that type
0: And it's good for people to get that perspective. I know that I had a strength and conditioning coach at one point in time that told us that we needed to increase our overhead press to be able to throw harder and the 400 pound barbell overhead press was the equivalent of hundred miles per hour off the mound. So uh, we better start hammering the overhead press. You just hear all these crazy stuff. And this was, this was a college strength and conditioning coach. So it's unfortunate, but I think, uh, I think that your presence online is, is something that's benefiting a ton of people. And especially this book now, I mean, that's the, that's the toughest thing a lot of times for somebody who's so busy to do is to be able to document all this stuff in a written format where you're questioning, okay, should I change how I write this a little bit or how is this going to be perceived uh, huh. as you go through the book? If I write it this way, it's going to be perceived this way versus versus another way, which makes it so so difficult.
1: And it, Yes, it's very, very tough. It's honestly tough because you have to put yourself out there and you have to be Really, you have to be judged by every one of your peers that that picks up that book at some point. And something else, somebody told me, they were like, they said, just write it, just write it down. And when you're done, you're done. Because six months down the road, anything in a book, your opinion changes six months down the road on a lot of what you do. If, if it doesn't, then you're not growing and you're not learning. And there's stuff in that book that I'm like, oh, man, I I, yeah, I don't necessarily do that the way I the way I put it in the book anymore because we've we've grown we've advanced a little bit but that was another thing that stuck with me is anything you write in a book six six months down the road you uh, you're, you're gonna look back and and it's there but you're gonna do things differently so you just have to leave it as is and move on
0: maybe you could go just into your thoughts on periodization a little bit because we've read some of your stuff on uh, periodization and I wanted
1: to give sure. you that so now in in our setting in my setting there really isn't such a thing as periodization right periodization was essentially built and developed for single um what am i looking for individual sport athletes not team sport athletes and especially not team sport athletes that are playing in competitions for the most part year round a lot of them right you can't you can't break into blocks and train for one specific thing when your athletes need a bunch of everything, right? Our, our baseball athletes, they need speed, they need power, they need strength, they need skill work, all right? We can't have blocks of only power, blocks of only skill work. We So we use a vertical integration model where everything is trained all the time, but I can use those in varying volumes. Um, and it becomes very easy because imagine if you only did strength work for four weeks out of the year and then, and then did skill work and then eight or 12 weeks down the road, you wanted to come back to strength work, that, that's very hard to just randomly throw in there, creates huge amounts of soreness, right? It's a huge stress to the system because you haven't been doing it. But if we have everything in the program all the time, and I just adjust the volumes as we go, it's very easy to, to for a kid to finish the season and say, okay, I really don't have any speed. I need to work on speed. Okay, guess what? We're going to bump up your speed volume. We've already been sprinting, So you're ready for it. You're adjusted. You've been acclimated to it. So let's just bump up your sprint volume. We'll drop some of the other volumes down here. Now you've got a four or six week, eight week block of specific sprint work to get faster, to work on a weakness. So we use the vertical integration model over periodization any day. Uh, My athletes essentially play baseball year round. Um, You know, I'll give you an example of the fall. We've got a 16 week fall. We don't have that this year because of COVID but we traditionally have a 16 week fall. Um, seven of those weeks are going to be spent in fall ball, right? The first four to that are going to be spent with individual work. They have their individual hours. We have a fall break in there. We've got Thanksgiving, which is another three or four or five days off. You've got finals, which is two weeks that you really can't train at all. All right. So now out of that 16 weeks, I really have somewhere in the neighborhood of about 12 weeks. Well, out of those 12 weeks, we're playing baseball for 10 to 12 of those weeks. So there's nothing that I can, I can't block things out and have this beautifully prepared program. Everything we do is vertically integrated. So everything's in the, in the program, but it's also very agile. And I'm sure you guys see this in your, in your facility as well. It has to be agile because the weight room is not their only sport. What I'm doing training wise, I shouldn't say their only sport. The weight room isn't their sport. They have to have something in the gas tank. For their actual sport on the field, and so if that uses a ton of of energy over there, then I have to adapt and adjust over here. I can't be set in my ways to say that we're only we're, we're going to follow what I put on the on the paper four months ago for this periodization plan, regardless of what I see in front of me at this very moment.
0: With college athletes, the difficult thing is they're not pro athletes that only have to play baseball and train for baseball. They have classes. And so the way that you have to structure your weight room time and allow for your class time, which athlete might have an evening class, then they might have a morning class. And so that's where I know it becomes difficult for you guys that are in that collegiate setting. How would you go about athletes have a big fall ball thing? They're trying to win a spot in fall ball, basically on the varsity roster. Do you structure their training
1: a little differently to account for that? If you don't, why not? If you do, how do you do that? Well, it, it sort of depends. You know, at our level during fall ball, I have to pull back a little bit. Um, but we're still trying to get some development out of our guys, right? Because it's, it's just such an extended period of time. We have, to, we have to train to develop a little bit. We have to be agile to what they're doing over there on the field as well. For a high school kid, I would push development year-round for the most part. There's there's easy ways to develop your kids and let them still still play in in you know fall ball seasons in in their spring season with those athletes they don't have outputs at a high enough level typically to not be able to train and still get development and really the biggest part in their training needs to be consistency it's got to be consistent because what you see with with high school athletes is they come you know two days this week and then you don't see him for 10 days and then it's one day and then it's 3 weeks the guy that just comes consistently you don't have to beat him beat him into the ground with strength training with speed training with any of these things just a little bit of dose of all of these all of these things consistently over the course of time produces huge results and that's what i try to get across to these coaches is that be consistent with your training in the spring so many high schools i'm sure you guys see this they train in the fall Oh, we train five days a week in the fall. Well, what, what are you doing in the spring for during the season? Ah, we don't have time. So you dump it for four or five months. Well, guess what? Every kid you have is basically back at the bottom of the mountain to try to climb that mountain again. And then we dump it. And now you're back at the bottom. When ultimately, if you consistently train, you eliminate the soreness problems. You eliminate the, the issues that would you, that you would typically associate weight training Um with in their body, right? Everybody gets sore when they start lifting. Well, we can't do that. We're in season. We're not going to be sore. Well, if you don't stop lifting, if you don't stop training, then you don't have those problems. That are that's so- why we
0: see guys who are halfway through the year, and it's been documented by the literature time and time again, they lose rotator cuff strength. They lose speed. They lose conditioning, general conditioning, and basically anything they look at, if the athlete's not training for that, and that's the problem with the standard periodization model, in my opinion, is you've blocked off a certain type of training for a certain amount of time, and you really develop that aspect, and then it almost is neglected, or in a lot of cases, is neglected for another period of time, and that entire time, there's a degradation performance in that specific category. And so, yeah. from an perspective, we see that all the time with shoulder injuries and rotator cuff strength, scapular strength, but that's equally true for any performance variable or metric that you look at, if you're not working on it, at least in a capacity to maintain it at the bare minimum, you're gonna be losing it. And it takes a certain amount of time to lose strength and it takes a certain amount of time to lose speed, to lose cardiovascular endurance and these things. And if, even if I've spent so much time in the offseason doing it, if, if there's no focus on it at all during the in-season component, which, like you said, becomes increasingly difficult, especially when you have three seasons in baseball. A lot of times you got summer balls, spring season, your college season, your fall yep. balls. And then it becomes a
2: real real problem.
1: Yeah. I mean, that is one of the biggest knocks on, on just your typical western or linear periodization is that you lose the um the effects of the previous blocks, right? Because you you never you never touch on them again or for such a long period of time. And that's why That's why all those pieces are always in for us. We always sprint. We always jump. We always, we always throw, we always lift. It's just in the volumes and intensities that we do those things. I like it with,
2: and this is obviously an, it depends topic, but with our guys, typically we recommend that they take some downtime from throwing anywhere from, you know, four to eight weeks, depending on the athlete. What are your, what's your views on that? And if you are recommending downtime, I know it's a little different with you. You're dealing with guys who are in these summer leagues that are, you know, taking it pretty much right up to fall ball and stuff like that at the start of school. Um, Where do you, do you implement a break in there and where do you do it? And then also how are you training them during that period so that they're not losing, you know, that aspect of the
1: throw? Yeah, so with our college guys, we tend to uh, shut them down a lot less than we used to. Um, when I first started, you know, over a decade ago in, in, in baseball, I was always under the opinion that they needed to be shut down for, you know, your two, two month period, your three month period, whatever the case was, Not the arm rest with the college guys. We really don't shut them down that much anymore because unless we can do it over an extended period of time, what happens, one of the big problems we see is you shut down for three, four weeks. That ramp up is, it's just it's just a pain in the ass if you want the truth and it it kind of gets a little bit dangerous because you try to build in a long enough period of time for them to shut down but yet you're teetering on the edge of now we really have to get this thing going type of a type of a mentality um you guys have
2: smaller
1: smaller windows to work
2: with i mean yeah the school it's a couple like a week or two of school and that's right to the baseball meeting and everything
1: So, yeah, for us in the fall, I mean, we might in a typical fall, you're going to finish fall ball somewhere around, you know, the week or so, two weeks before Thanksgiving, somewhere around November, generally, um, end of October. And but then you still have school for another three weeks. So you do some individuals, you keep the guys moving and then you've got a four week Christmas break. And that's typically when coaches would say, well, we need to try to shut down somewhere in that window. Right. But you can't shut them down in that window because your practices start January 10th to 17th, right? So you've got to be ready to get to start practices because the baseball season is coming. So they've got to be ramped up so that at practice, they're not ramping up. They've got to be at that, at that, you know, they've got to be there to throw. So it's, yeah, the windows become very, very tight. So we've decided, and, and over the last honestly f- probably four five, six years to not shut guys down over windows like that. In the summer, we can, but a lot of our guys, depending on uh, their ability and where they where they lie as far as you know how good they are, pro as, uh, pro aspirations and whatnot, those guys will go into development uh, periods. So a guy that needs to change an arm pattern or needs mechanical work or velocity work, those guys we we use the summer now as as that developmental window where they're not throwing on a mound and we can actually make those changes because it's super hard. You guys know this. It is super hard to change anything when they are competitively throwing because they will always revert back to that pattern. They will always, it's so hard to break those um, mechanical issues that you find because they're on the mound competing. So their body's just going to go back to what they've done for the previous 13 years, right? So when we have an extended period of time in the summer, that's when we will make changes or developmental guys, red shirts, that type of stuff. I'll do that in the spring.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a great point to make. I think every coach and athlete out there should definitely adhere
1: to that. So, you know, and, and I'm not trying I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but on the pro side, my pro athletes, the same thing. A lot of those guys will, will um, continue to throw. It's kind of a half and half deal. A lot of those guys choose to throw now through most of their off season. And to be honest, the results and they're, I, I guess, Perception of it is way easier when you start to ramp up and and um, get after it than it is when they would shut down for four to six weeks because you know the pro season lasts forever now too and one of the biggest the biggest problems that at, at the pro ball level is these guys are taking care of themselves for the most part and they don't throw with enough intensity going into spring training and that's why you see the amount of injuries that you see in spring training because they don't force themselves to ramp up fast enough, and to throw intense enough. Their bullpens are 75%, 80% effort. They don't throw to live hitters. These are the problems that I've seen for the last 10 years. And fortunately, I think we've eliminated most of those here with with our training uh, setting, but the same thing goes for the pro athletes. Now, with the high school kids, the younger kids, I I don't want to – I actually do recommend that those kids try to shut down. Um, You know, the younger you get, I think the more downtime that you do need.
0: Yeah. I like that. I like that thought process. And that, that's, that is a huge problem. If you have a guy who's shut down for eight weeks, um, they got to go back and throw. Now they've shut down for November, December, January practice, start up one weekend. And that two months off is a, is a huge deficit in terms of what you need to gain back in throwing. What a lot of, uh, colleges, especially some of the guys that we work with the guys who are, you know, sophomore the coach kind of knows their level the junior they're shutting them down for part of the fall season where they're not even throwing part of the fall season and then they're ramping back up especially if they've played a significant
1: summer ball season right you that at all? Or? yeah so um, i mean in those cases i honestly i don't think i have a problem with that necessarily if you have that window then there's nothing wrong with taking advantage of it like you said if if we're starting practices the second week of january we want you to have to be on the mound and be mound ready you need to have three four plus weeks of on-ramp to get to that point safely in my opinion right and so now you've got to reverse engineer the process and that's where people that's where i think we fall short in short windows and trying to shut down is you have to have that four weeks so reverse engineer the process let's go back this is where i actually have to start throwing Shit, I've only got two weeks to be able to shut down. Is that even worth it? So that's why we we keep our guys. Usually, it's a two to three time a week um, toss at sixty to ninety feet. We give them an RPE, you know, basically a six, five to six as far as an RPE and effort. Keep your arm moving. You're going to go out there and just throw, throw as many as you feel, throw it till you feel good, and uh, and and that's really it.
2: That's good.
0: Well, I know we went over our time just a little bit here. Uh, final question we want to leave you with is one piece of advice for that high school kid. He's on the cusp of uh, getting recruited. He wants to get into a college program. What's your piece of advice in terms of training, education? What does this guy need to do?
1: Oh boy, that's <laughs> and I, and to be honest, I didn't even realize we were over our time. It's it's uh, this is. a a great podcast um my advice for them is i would have to say to chase development right and we've already talked about it a little bit consistency that's got to be one of the biggest factors but to chase development as far as uh, training goes as far as your strength speeds speed power and skill work all right i see way too often guys are are kids are worried about going out to this showcase that showcase when they're not prepared they have oftentimes they have nothing to showcase right if you're not in their training to get faster to get stronger to throw harder what are we out there showcasing right I, i've seen athletes that that uh, that message me on instagram and say hey you know i throw 77 mile an hour i've got this and such showcase you know coming up um Or their parents will say, well, they can't train. They've got this showcase, this select tournament coming up. But if they're not there, if they're not showcasing something that actually coaches want to see, you need to get in and actually train and develop as an athlete. Get away from the sport. Like you said, we can throw plyo balls. We can can do arm patterning. We can change mechanics and still get away from the sport for the most part, right? We need these athletes to develop if they want to have a shot absolutely wholeheartedly agree where can people find you so essentially everything uh everything i own is just under my name zach dakin uh website zachdakin.com the book's there um twitter and instagram is is kind of where i uh, focus all my time and uh those are both zach dakin at both those platforms
0: and book movement over maxes definitely check that out you gotta read some of zach's Twitter posts. He's got some good threads, good videos on there as well for you guys. I want to thank you for coming on. This has been an awesome. Awesome yeah. podcast. One of the best so far. We don't have a lot, but one of the best. So appreciate it. Thanks for coming. Yeah.
1: On. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Uh, I actually, that, that was a great conversation. I enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, feel free to reach out anytime. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: I'm Max Wardell.
1: Carver Kowalczyk. In the
0: name of Overhead Athletics. Signing off.